Thank you. It is great to be with you. I've known of this church for decades before I came to Kingswood. You are well known across our denomination as a leading light in this part of the world and a model for other churches across our denomination and beyond. So it's a joy to be with you, and I want to tell you that. I want you to know that you have a lot to be grateful for, and uh, to whom much is given, much is required, right? One of the things you've done is to be so faithful in supporting Kingswood University, Bethany Bible College, prior to our name change a few years ago. Putting us in your budget means so much. Sending us students means so much to us. We appreciate that. For those of you who don't know about Kingswood University, we're located in Sussex, here in the province of New Brunswick, and uh, we offer basically three types of programs. We have an associate's degree for an individual who wanted to get a good foundation in a, in a Christian college to grow spiritually, be established, and then transfer on to pursue a major, say, in education, nursing, medicine, law, programs that we don't offer. A second program that we have is called Praxis, and this would be for an individual, it's kind of like a gap year, except it's a gap year for a student that really wants to invest himself or herself in ministry. They get college credit, two years of college credit, but they spend a lot of time traveling, ministering, going to prison, coming out of prison. Um, it's, a, it's a very hands-on kind of approach. The third program that we have is for those who are intending to enter ministry, service to the church in, in, in some fashion, uh, full-time ministry or part-time ministry, tent-making ministry, really whatever it takes to strengthen the local church in some kind of leadership role. This is our bread and butter. This is what we're known for. Our graduates are serving literally around the world, across North America, and they are known as being Christ-like, spirit-led ministry makers, Christ-like, spirit-led ministry makers. That's our vision. That's what we intend to produce. We will not reach this post-Christian North America, this post-Christian world with ministry as usual. We must have men and women who know how to follow the direction of Christ's spirit to be agents of ministry making. And that's what you're supporting at Kingswood University, and we are so grateful for that. Pray for us. We can't do what we do without your prayer support. We're not about just turning out people. We want to see people transformed by the Spirit of God, which is something only He can do. So pray for us. I pastored before I entered education, and, uh, and you know there are churches where you go to be seen... And then there are churches where you go because you daren't be seen anywhere else. Well, I was blessed in my very first church to serve in the latter type of church. When I got there, I heard what it was said about our church in our community. If you can't show up anywhere else, you can show up at the Wesleyan Church in Pine Grove and they'll take you. Now... <clears throat> I don't think that was intended as a compliment, but I took it as fun. I wanted to be at a church where anybody could come and anybody could be welcome and everybody would be seen as people that God loved. And maybe that's why I feel such a strong connection with Rahab, the prostitute. It's kind of like a lady in my church in some ways. So turn in your Bibles to Joshua 2, and we're going to look at somebody you may not have heard preached about for a little while, 
Joshua chapter 2, Rahab the prostitute. It's an extended scripture reading. I hope you'll bear with me, stick with me right to the end, but I want to make sure we cover everything. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of, the, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they've come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I didn't know where they'd come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, the men left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. That part of the world then, some, some agree still now, the roofs are flat, an extra room to catch a breeze, or store flax, as in this case, that's where she'd hidden them. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan, and as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and she said to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you and that a great fear of us, of you, has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, Rahab said, our hearts melted and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us this land. So she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. Now she said to them, go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there three days until they return and then go on your way. The men said to her, this oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land you've tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you have brought your father and mother, your brothers and all your family into your house. If anyone goes outside your house into the street, his blood will be on his own head. We will not be responsible. As for anyone who is in the house with you, his blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on him. But if you tell what we are doing, we will be released from the oath you made us swear. Agreed, she replied. Let it be as you say. So she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. When they left, they went into the hills and stayed there three days until the pursuers had searched all along the road and returned without finding them. Then the men started back. They went down out of the hills, forded the river, and came to Joshua, son of Nun, and told him everything that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, listen, the Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. Let's pray. 
Father, open our eyes and our ears and our hearts. Help us to listen, respond in obedience to whatever it is that you tell us this morning. You are present in this room and you are present to work in our lives. And I ask that you would do that for us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We're talking about Rahab, an obscure figure, Canaanite woman, who lived thousands of years ago, and yet I'm going to stand here and talk for the next 20 minutes about her. She has achieved a level of stature, a level of of honor, that we would actually devote a whole service to her. Now, Now, for some people, it takes a while to develop that degree of stature, but for Rahab, it happened right away. Joshua, the commander of the Israelites, who are at this moment poised just across the Jordan River, ready to invade. Joshua, the man who had been instructed by God not to let a single Canaanite survive this conquest effort. Joshua, the leader of the Israelites, a faithful man of God, when he discovers what Rahab has done, spares her life. Spares her family's life. Everybody in her extended family that is in her house lives in spite of what God had said, merely because of this woman. And what's more, he lets her live among the Israelites. Chapter 6. She actually takes up residence as an Israelite. It isn't just Joshua. Whoever wrote the book of Joshua, and I don't know who that was, the book's anonymous. But whoever wrote the book clearly regarded Rahab as a very special person. Now we see this in two ways. One is, is in the use of her name. In that culture, when you were writing history, by mentioning the name of a person when you're telling the story, you give them honor. By not mentioning the name, you diminish the honor that's given to them. So, for example, in the story of the two midwives who are prominent in the early chapters in the book of Exodus, the two midwives that Pharaoh says whenever an Israelite woman gives birth, kill the baby... We know the names of those two midwives. We do not know the name of the Pharaoh who gave them that instruction. You see how it works? Now, there are only two names given in this story. Joshua is one. Guess who the other one is? The second way that we see the prominence that this writer of the book of Joshua gives to Rahab is in the prominence of her speech. Right in the heart of the chapter that I've just read for you, right at the most prominent location in that chapter, are her words. It's not indirect speech. It's not someone summarizing what Rahab has said. These are Rahab's words themselves, which again is a literary device, a way of emphasizing what was said. You notice that the pace of the story slows down. If, we were, if this was a movie, the camera would have focused in on Rahab and the two spies up on the rooftops. And there would be tremendous attention given to what she says at that moment. And you notice the length. One commentator notes that this is the longest uninterrupted speech of a woman anywhere in the Old Testament. Not only Joshua, but the author of the book of Joshua recognizes in this woman a woman of prominence, a true heroine. Fast forward about 12, 1500 years, and you get to the New Testament. And guess who shows up in the New Testament? Rahab. Matthew chapter 1, before we're even out of the first chapter of the New Testament, we meet Rahab. And guess where we meet her? 
She figures in the genealogy of Jesus. You heard me right. Jesus is descended from a prostitute, Rahab. We meet her again in the book of James. When James is searching for an example of faith, he turns to Rahab. Here's what he says about her. In the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. We meet her in the book of Hebrews. In of all places, the hall of the heroes of faith. There's her picture hanging next to the picture of Abram and Moses and Sarah. There she is, Rahab. And the caption under the picture says this, Hebrews eleven thirty one. 31. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. Here is this woman, a prostitute, and clearly in her own lifetime and for decades, generations, millennia, regarded as a woman to be admired. And all of this with three strikes against her. You got the strikes, right? She tells this little, oh, what shall we call it? Misleading statement? I don't know where they went. She knows where they are. They're up on a roof. I don't know where they went. You better go after them. Now, some people are bothered by this. Some people think she should have told the truth and let the chips fall where they may. God would have protected his spies. Other people say, well, listen, this is a time of war and like the, the, the people who protected the Jews in the time of the Nazis in Europe, she told a lie and it was justified. And other people say, what lie? St. John Chrysostom, who's one of the early church fathers, this is what he says about her lie. Oh, good lie. Oh, good guile. Now, I am not defending if you think it's a lie, don't go on and tell a lie just because Rahab does. But anyway, this is, a, this is strike one. Strike two is the fact that she's a Canaanite woman. Now, women in this culture, in the biblical culture, in the ancient Near East, were second-class or third-class citizens. They were, basically, they were basically property that could be used at the husband's discretion. A woman in this culture would have a difficult time rising to the status of a superstar. A heroine has to do a whole lot more heroics in order to be a hero, if you get my drift. She's a woman. She's a Canaanite woman. Remember what I told you about the Canaanites. God had lots of things to say about the Canaanites, and all of them were negative. These are people who are doing all the wrong things. They're worshiping false gods. They're living immoral lives. They're even putting their children through the fire, child sacrifice, very probably. These are people, if you let them live next door to you, they will lead you astray. There'll be thorns in your eyes. I do not like that image. But this woman, this Canaanite woman, strike two. And strike three, of course, is her occupation. People have been trying to find another job for Rahab for over 3,000 years. They say, well, she wasn't really a prostitute. She was a businesswoman. She wasn't really a prostitute. She was an innkeeper. She was in international commerce. She was a hooker. I don't know any other way to say it. It's the only way the New Testament refers to her. We, ne we never hear about her husband. And she's living exactly in the spot in Jericho where you would expect there to be a brothel. Right on the wall, right by the gate. And yet, 
even with three strikes against her, within minutes, this woman is already regarded as a heroine, and she continues to be regarded as a heroine to this moment in Moncton, New Brunswick. And so the question you and I ought to be asking ourselves is, what in the world did this lady do? And the answer is found in her words, her speech. So go with me back to verses 9 through 13. This is a woman who somehow, and I don't know exactly how, but somehow this woman came to an understanding of the character of God that many of us who've grown up in the church have trouble getting a hold of. This is a woman who understood that God was omnipotent, all-powerful. He had power over the Red Sea, verse 10, could part that large body of water and allow his God's people to pass through and bring it back over the Egyptian army when they tried to pursue them. He was a God who had power over the natural world. He was a God who had power over powerful people. Verse 10, Sihon and Og, these are two Amorite kings. And when the Israelites came up into the land, they passed through the territory of these two kings who came out and attacked them. And the Israelites vanquished them. It was because of God, his power over these powerful people. She understood that this God had the power over other nations. Now, let me just pause here and explain it. In that culture, a God was kind of a national God. So there'd be a God of Canada, and then there'd be a God of the United States, and then there'd be a God of, of, the, of England, and so forth. You notice what she says there in verse 9. Your God, the Israelite God, has given you our land. You hear what she's saying? Your God is not limited by national boundaries. Your God goes beyond those boundaries. Therefore, your God must be more powerful than these other gods. And in fact, look at what she says in verse 11. Your God is more powerful than any other God. Now, this is a remarkable statement for this woman to make. Somehow she understands that Israel's God is powerful over everything. And by the way, can I just say that the same things that she identifies God as being more powerful than then are still the same things that keep us up to at night now. But somehow she understood that Israel's God was omnipotent. But interestingly, so did the rest of the Canaanites. Several times in this story, we hear about these Canaanites melting in fear, a figure of speech that they were terrified. They were all terrified. But Rahab, and Rahab alone, does something about it. Why? Because Rahab understood that not only was God omnipotent, God was also all-merciful. Not only did he have all power, but he was a loving God at the same time. And how do we see that? Well, look what she says. Your God has given you this land, verse 11, that God, Israel's God, Jehovah, Yahweh, had made a covenant with his people. He wasn't just a God up there. He was a God who actually came down and entered into a relationship with these Israelites. But she goes even further. She says, not only do I believe that your God entered into a covenant with you, I believe that your God, who entered into a covenant with you, will show kindness to me. Look what she says, verse 12. She believed that God would show kindness to her family. 
That term kindness is an interesting term. It's the Hebrew word chesed. And it's the word that's often translated covenant love. Here's what she's saying, friends. She believes that not only would God be so gracious as to enter into a relationship with the people that he chose, but he would even extend that graciousness to her, a Canaanite woman prostitute. And then she says something that's really remarkable. You have to think carefully about it, but notice what she says to the spies up on the rooftop. It's there in verse 12. She says, essentially, save me as I saved you. And then she says, swear to God that you'll keep your word. Now, I have to admit, I read past that the first several times, and then it finally dawned on me. What is she saying? She is saying that God, if you break your word to me, will side with me against you. Isn't that a remarkable conclusion to draw? He's your God. He's commanded you to destroy me. But if you break your word to me, your God will side with me against you. Rahab understands that God is not only omnipotent, but all-loving. And you know what's interesting? Those are the two things about God that are most important for us to know. When the early church fathers were writing the creeds like the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, listen to what they said about God. Of all that they could have said about God in the Apostles' Creed, here's what they said. I believe in God the Father Almighty. There you have it. Almighty, omnipotent, Father, loving. Somehow Rahab understood that God was a loving, all-powerful God. And she kept her balance. We can sometimes lose our balance. We can sometimes see God's power and lose sight of his love. We can sometimes see God's love and lose sight of his power. The key is to keep your balance. And Rahab kept her balance. She understood the truth about God in ways that many of us forget. But the thing that's really remarkable about Rahab is not what she affirmed. It's what she did with what she affirmed. She didn't just confess her faith. She actually put it into action. When the king's men came to the door and demanded that she give them the spies, the spies she knew were right up on her roof, she committed herself to her affirmation of faith. She lived it out. She put her neck on the line before she had the first word of promise from the spies. Before she had exacted the oath of protection, she already put her neck in the noose. Now that is faith. Am I the only one who has to stand in admiration of a Canaanite prostitute? Am I the only one that sometimes find myself losing my balance? Am I the only one in this room who sometimes will affirm my faith that God is omnipotent and all-loving, and yet my actions don't bear that out? A bill comes due, I don't know where the money's coming from, and I begin to panic. A responsibility falls in my lap, and I know I don't have the resources for it, and I begin to panic. 
problems come into my family, problems that seem to suggest that God has lost his grip or lost his attention or no longer loves me, and I begin to question that, am I the only one in this sanctuary that struggles? Am I the only one who has to stand and recognize that, that Rahab's faith outdoes mine on occasion? This is a crazy world. This is a crazy culture that we live in in North America. And there are things about this culture that give me pause and keep me up at night. But here's what I think. I think if we had a church of Rahabs, we'd have nothing to worry about. If we had people that affirmed the right thing, that kept their balance, and then lived it out, we would have nothing to worry about in this world. There would not be room in this sanctuary to contain the people who would want to have what we have if we were more like Rahab. Because Rahab's faith strengthens other faith. Did you notice verse 24? You may not have noticed it. I didn't notice it the first time. When those spies were given their instructions by Rahab, they were told that they were supposed to spy out the whole land of Canaan, starting with Jericho. They get to Jericho, meet with Rahab, and then head back across the river to Joshua. Why? Why didn't they continue their, their surveillance? Because they didn't need to. They'd gotten all the information that they needed to get. Rahab's faith strengthened their faith, strengthened it to the extent that when they went back and reported to Joshua what they had learned, they quoted Rahab. Rahab's faith strengthened their faith. Here's my question. Whose faith has strengthened your faith? I think of my parents, of course. I think of Reverend Hansen, a retired missionary, he and his wife to India. They'd settled back in our area, and, and I remember going to visit him when he was dying of cancer. And I went there as this kind of young pastor. I went there to encourage him. But, of course, I came away learning how to die like a man of God. Some of the people that have strengthened my faith, I never met. They were long dead. Jim Elliott, martyr to the Aka Indians. He is no fool, he said, who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. C.T. Studd. C.T. Studd lived in England. He was a cricketer. He was a superstar of cricket. He was a Sidney Crosby of cricket. But God called him to be a missionary. And here's what he said. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice is too great for me to make for him. Who strengthened your faith? My faith is strengthened by the students at Kingswood. I see them come. They could go to other colleges. They could get more lucrative professions. I see, I see married students who show up on my campus who have given up businesses and career and training to train for the ministry to be ministry makers in the world and my faith is strengthened who strengthened your faith next question whose faith are you strengthening right now who is looking at you 
and looking at your life. And their faith is growing because they see you exercise your faith. You say, Steve, who am I? Who was Rahab? What can I do? What did she do? She opened the door. And then she did what she knew was right. That's all. A faith like Rahab builds the faith of others. And a faith like Rahab saves lives. You say, okay, I'm not going to be saving anybody's life. Rahab saved her life. She saved her family lives. She saved the spies' lives, probably others' lives. I'm not going to be saving anybody's life. Well, maybe not. How about something more important? How about a soul? I don't know what this church is like. I don't know if you're more like that church that goes where people go to be seen or if you're like that church where people go because finally someone will see me. I don't know what this church is really like, but here's what I hope it's like. A church where Rahab would feel right at home. Because, hey, don't we believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ can turn a Rahab into a heroine of the faith? And if we believe that, shouldn't we be making room for Rahab? Shouldn't she feel welcome when she comes into this place? She knows she's a prostitute. She knows she's a Canaanite. But does she know that God loves her? That's what she needs to know. Does she know that he's all-powerful? Does he know that he'll stick up for her? That's the kind of faith that saves lives. Are you that kind of person? Do you have Rahab's in your life? Rahab's in your family? I do. Been praying for him. But sometimes, sometimes it just seems like nothing's going to change. If we really believe that God can take a Rahab and turn her into a heroine of the faith, then there are no hopeless cases, not even in your family or mine. It... And I got to say a word to some Rahabs, because I think they're in here. There are no hopeless cases. You're not a hopeless case. If God can take a Canaanite woman prostitute and turn her into somebody that I've just talked about for 30 minutes, not 20, if I, can, if I can talk about a Rahab and hold her up in front of this group of people as a model of faith, what can he do with you? A thousand or so years after this story, Jesus came through same town, Jericho, and there was a Rahab up the tree. His sin wasn't sex, it was money. And Jesus looked up at him just like he's looking down at you. And he's saying, come here, let's have lunch. And not far from this place in Jericho, Jesus was having dinner. And while he was reclining, his feet spread back to the shadows a prostitute came in and so moved with emotion 
at the grace that this man exuded from every aspect of his character. She wept in contrition and gratitude and washed his feet. They were showing that scene in the Jesus film in Nepal. And there was a Nepalese prostitute woman who was watching the Jesus film. And she saw that scene. And she thought to herself, if she could come to Jesus and find forgiveness, then so can I. And we have a sister in the faith, a former prostitute in Nepal. I want a faith like Rahab's, don't you? I want to be able to keep my balance, don't you? I want to have a faith that says there are no hopeless cases, don't you? And I want to be a part of a church where Rahab can find a place of welcome, don't you? Let's pray. Almighty and gracious, loving Heavenly Father, you amaze us. You take the people that we would never vote for. We wouldn't even feel comfortable in their presence. And you make them our brothers and sisters. And if we're really honest, that's what you did with us. Because you're a God for whom there are no hopeless cases. A God that we can come to know by faith, and as we live out that faith in obedience, you can change us and change those around us. And my prayer is for Moncton Wesleyan Church that this would be a place where people would come and meet you and find that transforming grace. In Jesus' name, amen.